FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Political Rewind this Tuesday. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers, in for Bill Nygut. As the Fulton County's investigation into Donald Trump's behavior during the 2020 election continues, now District Attorney Bonnie Willis also has her eyes on a group of GOP leaders who served as alternate electors. At least eight Republicans have already accepted immunity deals, but former state GOP chair David Schaefer maintains he was following legal advice and didn't break the law. The AJC's senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman, has been following the Fulton County beat for months. She's done an amazing job and is here to break it down for us. Glad you're here, Tamar. Hey, Donna. Thanks so much. It's always great to see you in the host seat. We're going to we're going to have uh, a lot of information coming from you today. I'm happy about that. We're also joined by Margaret Coker. Margaret is editor-in-chief of The Current, reporting on the news in coastal Georgia. If you're not getting The Current in your daily mailbox, you should. It's always filled with great information. How are you, Margaret? Hi, we're well. It's warm here in Savannah. Spring is definitively over. Yeah, did you say 89 degrees it could get out down there today? That's right, and about Whoa. 89% humidity all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, um, hang in there. Hang in there. Thank uh, you. We're also joined by King Williams. King is a documentarian and journalist. He created The Atlanta Way, which focuses on public housing and gentrification. Thanks for joining, joining us, King. Thank you for having me. Hey, your name says it all, King. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Thanks for being here. And we'll be joined a little bit later by Shania Chavis-Rucker. She's divisional head of Fulton County's Films Films Office, and she'll be talking about the ongoing writer strike and how it impacts the industry. We'll get thoughts from King and our other guests on that strike, too, as it enters its second week beginning today. So let's get started with this conversation with a focus on the Fulton County DA's office and tomorrow. First, bring us up to date on the GOP electors, uh, a quick catch up on who they are, and then what we know on who has taken an immunity deal and who's still up in the air. Yeah, we've seen a lot of movement surrounding the electors over the last couple of weeks. Um, and I wonder if that's contributing to why we might not hear an indictment announcement from DA Willis until July at this point. Um, we saw in new court filings that um, the DA's office has been interviewing several of the electors who, uh, these are Republicans who met at the State House in December of 2020 and cast phony electoral college ballots for Donald Trump, even though Joe Biden had won the state. Um, and basically for the entire entirety of this investigation, uh, most of the electors were unwilling to talk. 11 of the 16 had banded together as a group, um, had tried to kill their subpoenas, um, had tried to avoid testifying. The DA's office had labeled all 16 of them as targets of the investigation, which means they could see charges as a result of all of that. And it seems that over the last month or two, there's been a lot of movement um, that a big group of them um, has taken immunity deals. We've learned uh, at least eight, so half of that group in exchange for their testimony. And 
there's a big question about what might have been said behind closed doors. Um, we know from court filings that they might have pointed the fingers at one of their, their colleagues. There's been movement to disqualify the attorney who's representing eight of them at this point. And our latest development is my colleague Bill Rankin and I got a letter from David Schaefer's attorneys. David Schaefer is the, the outgoing chairman of the Georgia GOP, who was one of the electors, and basically sharing his legal reasons for why he did what he did and in, in a bid to try and ward off a potential indictment. So lots of developments here. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, it, it could it all could almost be a soap opera, I think, in some ways, all the stuff that keeps coming out. So um, David Schaefer maintains he didn't break the law. Uh, tell us a little bit about his defense and all of this. Sure. His lawyers kind of cite two main things. First off, they cite a historical precedent. They point to 1960 in Hawaii and what happened uh, with electoral college votes there. There was a very tight race between Richard Nixon, Richard Nixon and JFK. Nixon very narrowly won after the first count by something like 100 votes. There still were three Democratic electors who cast contingent votes for JFK. And eventually, after a recount, uh, JFK did narrowly win the state. And so they, they cite that as a precedent and they say, that the language that Republicans in Georgia used was nearly identical, they say, to what was used in Hawaii. They also say that David Schaefer was following the advice of lawyers um, affiliated with the Trump campaign, and basically he was following legal advice. At the time, Trump had active cases in Georgia where he was challenging the vote count. And in Schaefer's argument, he was doing what he could to preserve Trump's legal options in case he were to be victorious in these very long shot cases. So basically, they're arguing that Schaefer had no bad intent in all of this. And that is key for D.A. Fonnie Willis to prove if she does want to seek an indictment against David Schaefer. Yeah, I, I'm curious. The, the same type of thing with the GOP electors took place in other states a few other, about the same time. Right. So do we know what's happening in those states with the people involved? Well, it's a different situation because there aren't uh, state level um investigations against the former president in the way there are in Georgia. We know that the Justice Department is also interested in the fake electors, and they have been interviewing many of the same people. Of course, the January 6th committee also took a deep dive into this as well. But Georgia is where the action is at this point. And all of this could play in even if none of these electors get charged individually, a lot of this could feed into a broader racketeering charge, which is something the DA has mentioned from the beginning that she's interested in looking at. Yeah, and we know she has a background in racketeering, bringing on racketeering cases, beginning with the Atlanta teachers trial way, way back when, when that I actually covered. So, all right, I, I want to, you know, we keep up with this and, and um, I appreciate all of your reporting on all of this. Um, this case surrounds election interference, of course. And so, Margaret, this news comes just as the governor signed a measure that virtually eliminates the ability for local elections um, the officials to use third party funding, those Zuckerbucks, uh, to help cover costs. And how, so how do you think it'll affect elections with that gone? Well, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's a really, uh, it's a really sticky point because 
there are a certain amount of Georgians who think that elections aren't fair in Georgia. And then there's a whole lot of, of our neighbors and county officials who actually run elections in some of the most sophisticated and professional ways um, possible. And so the um, the when it comes down to how elections are run in Georgia, I guess it's good to step back and remind everybody that it's counties that set those rules. It's also counties that that um, that take money out of their own budgets in order to pay for those election workers and help um, offset the cost of running elections. So every single one of our 159 counties are now going to have to take a good hard look at themselves and in the mirror and say, what kind of elections do we want run here? And how much money are we willing to spend out of our own budgets instead of being able to take advantage of, of uh, the good graces of civic groups and nonprofit groups and billionaires from around the countries who have wanted to see uh, elections run at the highest level possible. Um, if you're cynical, um, what people have said is that folks like Mark Zuckerberg, who have Democratic Party tendencies, who have more money than God, who is actually um, quoted in some of the conspiracy theories as trying to um, subvert American democracy for his own ends, you know, the belief is that those outside that outside money is up to no good and is not actually helping um, preserve our democracy and our communities. So counties are facing um, a lot of, of budget crunches themselves, a lot of questions about what to spend our taxpayer money on. This becomes another one of the um, the urgent to-do lists for, for everyone. Yeah. The good thing is this year in 2023, we won't see nearly as many elections as we did in 2022. It was a lot. One one after the other, especially for those of us in um, the metro area, some some of our cities. Um, King, let, let's talk about something a little bit different in terms of what the, the governor did. Um, he also signed a law on a prosecutor, uh, prosecutorial oversight, and it, it parallels moves to remove prosecutors in Florida. Indiana, Missouri, and Pennsylvania, as well as these broader disputes nationwide over how certain criminal offenses should be charged. A lot of that, uh, a lot of people have felt that this has been directed at D.A. Fonnie Willis, but not necessarily um, because there are others in the state who I I have actually um, Representative Houston Gaines, who is, who was the sponsor of this bill, talks about others in the state that uh, that they're looking at. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Houston Gaines because it seems in a lot of ways he sent a sub to Deborah Gonzalez out of Athens. Um, Houston Gaines was also the person who funded, who started the defund the police bill. And we see across the country right now, especially in states like Georgia, that are Republican-led with supermajorities, the Republicans are forcing the hand of their, their Democratic counterparts to follow the laws and procedures that they have ahead of them. I do think it's going to be a problem long-term because when we talk about criminal justice reform, we talk about prison reform, those things aren't necessarily going to be on the table if you have now laws that are saying that you must follow the rules and procedures of the dominant political party. And I do think this sets up a long-term issue with both the Democrats and just in general, the justice system in the state of Georgia. But for right now, uh, the Republicans can can keep their hands high that they did the thing that they wanted to do, which is force Democrats to follow their policies and then blame Democrats when the, the issues become too much to bear. Yeah, I know the law doesn't take effect, I believe, until July 1st. But, Margaret, you've, you uh, wrote about this in The Current also, and you talked about the DA in Chatham County. Well, right. And I would um, jump back and say that, of course, there is a, a former DA from the Judicial Circuit that um, is centered in Brunswick. Of course, during um, Ahmad Arbery's murder, um, the former DA there, Jackie Johnson, was 
she was removed from office during elections. She lost her seat, but she's under active indictment right now, and we're waiting for that trial to start. And so I think proponents of this legislation say quite credibly that there are DAs that um, do not are not fit for purpose, right? And DAs that need to be removed from office for um, either their own personal failings, their own political failings, or their own record in office. But there is a lot of suspicion, I think, in the way that the law is written in that the members of this commission that will be reviewing DAs are all appointed by uh, Republican um, Republican leaders of the state. Uh, the governor gets to select um, someone. The lieutenant governor gets to select someone. The Speaker of the House, the head of the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee, I believe, also gets to choose. Uh, when you have an entirely partisan group of people who are making a selection to the commission, that um, you know that starts to to have. Um, some effect on on either the the belief or the trust in, in that system of oversight, and here locally in Chatham County, uh, the fact that uh, Governor Kemp signed the bill here, and uh, one of the sponsors of the bill is a local state senator. You know, our our DA here in Chatham County um, is has been has been. Um, having a rough time of trying to uh, clear up the backlog of cases that have been in our criminal justice system since the pandemic and since Georgia closed its courts to uh, criminal trials because of that pandemic. She's also under a lot of pressure because of the politics of the election she won and the politics of the Republican Party here in Georgia. So there's not a whole lot of trust about how this is going to move forward. Yeah. Tamar, weigh in here. I mean, a lot of the national attention that you've seen on this uh, now law has focused on D.A. Willis. Of course, she's been very vocal against this bill, calling it racist. And, you know, this is only something that came up after all of these counties elected Democratic D.A.s or D.A.s of color for the first time. Um, and some people, you know, there's scuttlebutt that this is meant to, to target her for going after Donald Trump in her investigation. But kind of going back to what King was saying and, and Houston Gaines and talking about the D.A., in Athens, a lot of this seems to be going after these this new breed of progressive DA um, who have mentioned that they're going to um, not focus on indicting crimes related to uh, drug possession of, of marijuana, for example, or they don't want to prosecute abortion cases. And so this seems to me like more of an effort to go after those folks and kind of force them um, even even these Democrats in, in very blue areas to, to go after that. At the same time, there is prosecutorial discretion. They can't conceivably indict every single case that comes across their desk. And so one of the, the impacts of this law might be that you might not see DAs talk as much about the choices they're making and why, because they're scared to draw scrutiny to their offices. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens as this all comes together. And uh, I'm sure we'll be uh, talking about it a lot more here on Political Rewind. But right now, we're going to wrap up this segment and we're going to go to our first break here. And when we come back, we'll talk about the latest blow to financial aid for Georgia college students. Back in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
We're back on Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry in for Bill Nygut, and I'm joined by the AJC's Tamar Hallerman, the current's Margaret Coker, and journalist and documentarian King Williams. Uh, Margaret, I, I want to stay on Governor Kemp and and the, his bill signing and things he didn't sign. He vetoed about a dozen bills from the session, but one of those vetoes included HB 249, which would have provided more needs need-based aid for college students. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it, it seems um, perplexing to a lot of people that I've talked to over over the um, last few days since uh, since Kemp's veto came down. I mean, the idea behind the bill was to increase the amount of scholarship money available to uh, Georgia University students and also to um, create a job creation, basically lower the bar for a job creation program for veterans and also take care of one of the big job shortfalls that we have in the state of Georgia, which is the number of commercial truck drivers um, available. That's something that's huge here because, of course, the port of Savannah is uh, the main entry um, to the state for all of the goods that are coming in from overseas. And so Kemp's idea of vetoing um, these two issues uh, was that lawmakers had not created a pathway for funding um, these these increases or these subsidies, as it were. And so um, and so with that, he 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 did away with um, two um, big earmarks. Um, it's pretty extraordinary at a time when uh, Republicans are trying their best to um, to to I think bolster the idea that they are the um, the party that supports veterans, and this is a um, something that could come back to haunt them in upcoming elections. It's also um, a, a strange thing to do when Kemp is also touting the fact that he has passed the most um, the most uh, um, budget for for our education programs in state's history. So. There's a bit of hypocrisy that comes into his um, his argument as well, in that there isn't a, a pathway to funding these two issues, in that um, Kemp was um, had no problem signing a bill into law that also um, has no funding behind it, and that is a temporary increase of the uh, the weight that trucks can have on the roads of Georgia. Um, this is a, a cutout that is going to help the timber industry a great deal uh, because it allows heavier trucks full of pine and, and other forestry products um, to, to travel on our state highways. The Georgia Department of Transportation hated this bill because it also doesn't have a pathway to fund the road repairs that is going to be necessary when heavier trucks and more heavier trucks are coming down um, our country roads. Yeah, that excuse me, <clears throat> excuse me, that bill received a lot of uh, debate uh, during the legislative session. I, I, King, the the uh, the thing about the the um the governor vetoing the need-based aid for college students, it, it adds to some of what we saw during the legislative session where um, colleges and college students actually took a hit. Yeah, it seems at this point right now, we're seeing like the impacts of supermajority that is there uh, with the state's higher ed. I do think it's going to be important, though, that long term, as Georgia keeps touting itself as this place where education thrives and where growth happens, that if we don't necessarily start providing more need-based assistance to the students who need it the most, we could have a reverse migration or a brain drain. And I think that that's going to be something that the next governor, because I don't think Governor Kemp nor the people currently um, over the state uh, education are going to really address this. But if I'm Georgia, the one thing I want to address now is how do we keep the, those students who have the knowledge, but not necessarily the financial means to do so. And this is a step backwards in a lot of ways. And I don't think this is 
necessarily a one-off. I think this is a continuation of something that we're going to be looking at four or five years down the road of a, a systematic like reducing number of like people who cannot get into school or have funding support from the schools. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're going to um, change gears a little bit now and discuss something that the uh, that the Democrats are upset about. We discussed at length on our show on Monday how Georgia and Atlanta are still reeling from the Midtown Atlanta shooting last week. 24-year-old Dion Patterson is charged with one count of murder, four counts of aggravated assault after he opened fire in a Northside medical building. One woman died and injured for others, and we're still keeping everybody in our thoughts and prayers. Now Democratic lawmakers in the Georgia General Assembly are calling for Governor Kemp to hold a special legislative session. They're holding a press conference at the Capitol tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow, Tamar, talk about how unlikely it is that Kemp will go for a special session. Not at all likely, the opposite, extremely unlikely. Um, unfortunately, we've seen this play out time and time again. Uh, mass shootings have become all too common in America, but given the, the vast gulf between the two parties on gun control, I don't see this changing at all. Governor Kemp, of course, ran for governor on a platform of expanding gun access. Uh, he had provocative TV ads uh, talking about it. Um, and this is an issue that obviously riles up his base. Uh, gun rights folks are extremely active in the Republican primaries. And so if anything, Republican lawmakers are incentivized to go even more to the right to expand more access uh, to guns. And a signature proposal that he signed into law last year would allow Georgians to carry concealed handguns without applying for a license from the state. So we are moving more in that direction rather than the gun control direction. Yeah, I, I think the the feeling it with Democrats in Georgia is that they're they have to do something. This is this is the way they're 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 standing on this. We saw what happened in Tennessee, of course. Uh, so um, we're not in the middle of a legislative session. They won't get the. Um, they, they, they won't get the attention that they received in Tennessee during that session, but it'll be interesting. Um, let's switch to Democrats in Washington. <laughs> uh, President Biden is expected to work on the debt ceiling negotiations today with Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Senator Mitch McConnell, Senator Chuck Schumer. And this, as the U.S. Treasury warns, they could run out of cash by June 1st. And as this test of wills continues it's beginning to worry some people during the last debt crisis in 2011. A credit downgrade tanked stocks. This time, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned of a financial catastrophe by June 1st. Uh, I know, um, Margaret, you worked, uh, you talked about this a little bit in terms of Congressman Buddy Carter and his hard line on the debt ceiling. Talk about that first, and then we'll hear from you, Tamar, because I understand, we, as we talked about it, you were actually in Washington in 2011 when this happened before. Yeah, this is, um, seems like it is the background of my adult life um, and my life as a journalist. Every single year, every single two years, we, we get to these brinkmanship politics that um, I guess is part and parcel of the dysfunction of, of our national politics um, since the mid-90s. So for our listeners, we, are, we have this incredibly dramatic moment in which um, by by law and by rights, um, the U.S. is no longer going to be able to pay its current account deficit. But of course, the economy is booming um, and unemployment is at an all-time low. 
and the imbalance about um, how the nation keeps its uh, books and how we keep moving forward as an economy um, has to do with the kind of spending that the federal government prioritizes. Um, some of the big entitlement programs that we have um, in our nation in Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, defense spending. I mean, these are these are sacrosanct and these are the kind of entitlement programs that won't be touched when we're talking about uh, budget reductions. But at the same time, they eat up so much of the actual uh, pie that we have in terms of our spending um, possibilities that when we get down to the brass tacks of how to cut the federal budget, we get down to um, really, really um, key programs that each party likes to promote, likes to support, and hates to cut. And so this is where the, the rubber is going to meet the road. We are talking about, even um, within the first district, our, our Congressman Betty Carter talking about, it's not the the, the tone of, of our conversations in Washington moving forward is not going to be about um, it, it's not going to be about uh, whether to raise the debt ceiling. Everybody understands that we are going to raise the debt ceiling. It is how we're going to do that responsibly. Um, and that shouldn't, he says, that shouldn't even be in question. So Buddy Carter, from a political perspective, understands that uh, we can't touch the sacred horses of federal spending. We can't get into the weeds about whether or not to cut defense spending or even um, spending for for uh, agriculture um, subsidies or our um, struggling families. What we just have to do now is get beyond the headlines and actually figure out a way to keep the rest of the economy from suffering. Like you said, Donna, the, the short-term consequences are that stocks might tank, that um, companies then might lay off workers, and all of our pensions are going to take a hit. And it is a political disaster for anybody who's running for office this fall at a local level, but definitely for the people who are trying to um, set up their presidential campaigns, um, Biden and uh, pre former President Trump, um, to have this hang over their head. So if I were a Georgian not interested in the weeds of politics, I would just turn off my TV for the next three weeks and see what happens. Yeah, I think it's making a lot of people very, very nervous. Uh, Tamar, this uh, the this meeting today, um, how much can we expect to come out of it? I would expect very little at this point. We're a couple weeks off from the deadline and Washington loves a deadline. They love the suspense of last minute wheeling and dealing. And that's when the real deals get cut. Uh, right now, we're still seeing a lot of rhetoric coming out of, of especially House Republicans who want extractions from President Joe Biden. They know that the president needs them. And so they're hoping to get something out of this. As Margaret mentioned, everyone knows that at the end of the day, they're going to have to raise the debt ceiling. The Treasury has to pay its creditors whose bonds are coming due at the end of, or sorry, at the beginning of June. They need to meet payroll. They need to pay the bills for everything that the government buys. But they're hoping that they can get something that they can hang their hats on uh, for next year ahead of the elections. It, for me, is real deja vu from 2011, as you mentioned, Donna. Um, we were in a fairly similar position in that we had a Democratic president about to run for his second term. We had newly ascendant House Republicans getting comfortable in their new majority. We have a faction of hard right Republicans who are very much itching to, to show their conservative bona fides and want to extract something from the president. And last time we got to the brink of disaster, um, I remember talking to colleagues. I was a cub reporter at the time covering energy, but I started covering the budget beat about two years later. And I remember talking to colleagues who were there saying, you know, they 
toasted you know, New Year's of, of 2012, I believe, or 2011 at the Capitol waiting for a last minute deal, which which they were able to cut. Um, but I unfortunately think that my birthday on May 30th, we might be having similar conversations. Yeah. I, you know, in the end, there's really no heroes in all of this, but they will someone will uh they will make us think that there's a hero somewhere in this. It's just kind of the way Washington works um, and politics works, you know, that's, uh, the toasting. Um, it, it, I hate to think that there will be uh, champagne and celebrations after all of this, after you take you know country through something like this. But it happens. It does. Um, uh, let's go, switch gears a little bit on the, the Biden administration, the head of the CDC. Um, she put in her registration, her registration, her resignation um, as the World Health Organization declared the pandemic to be over. So Dr. Rochelle Walensky led that organization for the last two years. The CDC, of course, based here in the Atlanta area. Um, that said, I, I don't know if we all understand where we are in COVID. I wonder, King, if you have any thoughts on this. Yeah, um, I think for. Um, for Ms. Walensky, I think she just has to depart now while the, the time is still good. Um, I do think the private market is going to be much better for her. But when you talk about the next person in coming into the CDC, they're going to have to be effectively rebuilding trust, rebuilding trust with lawmakers, rebuilding trust with the public. And if you're Rochelle Walensky, she may have done well by setting forth the guidelines that let businesses reopen during COVID, but it really put back uh, the relationship the CDC had with a lot of trust in general Americans and a lot of people who are public health and public safety advocates. So. Um, this is just time. I think Atlanta is going through a phase. We're going to see a bunch of new leadership across the board. And it shouldn't be a surprise that it's happening at the CDC as well. And Margaret? Yeah, the unfortunately, you know, the, the CDC and the public health um, infrastructure in Georgia has taken such a reputational hit since the pandemic. It's it's a real shame because it's been a jewel in the crown of, of Atlanta for white collar workers, for our scientific uh, research community. You know, it's it. It has become a, a ground zero for cheap partisan shots in these hyper partisan times, and uh, I think all Americans, not just Georgians, who who work at this institution, are gonna um, can only pray that the the next leadership is going to be um, as professional, has such a strong scientific background, and um, perhaps have a little bit more diplomatic muscle in order to be able to survive. Uh, these these really choppy waters that um, all scientists have to live in right now in America. Yeah, she was really in a no-win situation in many ways, right, Tamar? Yeah, um, you know, she came in from Harvard and, and Boston, and, and this was after um, the reputational hit that, that the CDC took under the, the Trump administration. And she had a tough job as Americans were starting to get vaccinated in large numbers and kind of what sort of guidance you give vaccinated people in terms of of masking. And there was a lot of confusion um, in terms of what was and was not allowed, confusing guidance in terms of when to isolate after you have COVID and how long to do that. So I think a lot of people, it was confusing to a lot, myself included. I remember when I had COVID and I was trying to figure out when I could emerge from my apartment and the guidance wasn't as crystal clear as, as folks would have wanted. And so it was an almost impossible task, I think. And also, as King mentioned, to rebuild morale after such a hit that it took um, during the first year of COVID. And so that will be the challenge for the next leader of the CDC. I'll be curious to see if it's a homegrown 
person who's been working at the agency for a while or whether they go with an outsider like Walensky. Yeah, well, we'll just have to see. Okay, well, with that, I'm going to get to our final break a little bit early because when we come back, we're going to talk to the divisional head of Fulton County's film Films Office about the writer's strike and a little bit more. You're listening to Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry in for Bill Nygut. So for this first part of the show, we've had the AJC's Tamar Hallerman, the Currents Margaret Coker, and documentarian King Williams. And now we have joining us a special guest, Shania Chavis-Rucker. She is the divisional head of the Fulton Films Office in the, the Fulton County government. And we're thrilled to have you on the show today, Shania. Thanks for having me, Donna. Good to see everybody. Okay, so last Tuesday, a week ago, the Writers Guild of America announced it'd be it would be striking over compensation from streaming services. Among those I talked about, I talked to about the strike, and I had a, a chance to talk to several people, a couple of members of the Writers Guild, and an actor, and we're going to hear from them now. Writers are, have sort of been left behind as technologies advance, and it's happened before. It happened with DVDs, and it was about to happen with. Um, online uh, writing and now it's, the case is you know it's going to get out of hand so it's gotten worse for writers while profits have gone up for the major companies so you know the time came to address that you got to understand like this isn't just about me or us I should say that the, the nature of what we do takes a group but without having that center and that essence and the vision that starts what the idea is. You know, everybody's just wasting their time. Uh, there's, there's so many more people affected, from actors to directors to what they call below-the-line people. This is makeup artists, costumers, um, people who provide equipment to the sets, uh, the sound studios. So those were the voices of, first, John Richards. He is an award-winning veteran writer for films that include Nurse Betty and Sahara. Paul Eckstein, he is a veteran writer who is currently writing Godfather of Harlem on Netflix. And Mark Pettit, a Georgia actor who actually went out to Los Angeles last week to picket in support of the strike. I also want to read part of the statement from Kelsey Moore. He's executive director of the Georgia Screen Entertainment Coalition, which is affiliated with the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. Quote, as the leading voice for Georgia's film industry, we are closely tracking the impact of the Writers Guild strike on the tens of thousands of Georgians and small businesses that support our state's industry. Entertainment is extremely strong and stable as an industry in Georgia, and there is every expectation that it will continue to thrive here. State leadership has created a business-friendly climate, smart tax and economic development policies, made our state the number one number one place in which to do business for nine years in a row. And he adds that Georgia's production industry mirrors activity from last year, continuing to invest in small businesses and employ tens of thousands of hardworking Georgians across the state. So, Shania, give us an idea of kind of the size and the scope of the film and TV industry in, in, in the Georgia area and then what all of this means. Well, in the previous discussion this morning, Tamar mentioned that Georgia is where the action is. Uh, and she's absolutely right, even as it relates to the film and TV 
a business here in Georgia. Uh, we all are reminded often that uh, Georgia generated some uh, $4.4 billion last year alone. Uh, so when you're talking about an industry strike that many people support, uh, the bottom line is it will absolutely have a impact here in Georgia. Uh, just last week, uh, we got word that Netflix uh, let us, the showrunners let us know that Stranger Things just couldn't possibly move forward with its taping. Uh, and so, too, uh, is that is the case for a number of productions uh, in Georgia and all around the country. So just as Georgia was starting to hit its stride or had hit its stride related to the industry, um, we're, we're going to see this. And not just for um, the writers. Uh, but as we call them, yes, the below the line professions, you know, the makeup artists and, you know, catering and sound studios and costume designers, you name it, tens of thousands of people will absolutely be impacted. Are we starting to see anything right now? Is it, absolutely. will it take a while? Um, I, I think that we're already seeing, uh, I can speak to the Fulton Films Division, the largest county film division in the state of Georgia, uh, County commissioners had this year for the first time um, allocated a significant budget to, to the Fulton Films office, uh, understanding that that revenue would come right back. I know for Fulton County, Marvel uh, has a major contract. The good news there is because that particular project, the writing had already been done and production had already started. Uh, it will continue. But there are a host of other agreements that have just stopped halted, you know, not calling back, won't call back until this resolves itself. So we've already seen some impact, but absolutely we will continue to see more. So the, the writers I talked to are already saying that they're willing to go six months, um, even longer if they have to. Back in 2007, 2008, they went 100 days. So uh, that that's a long time for 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 all the people involved in this to be out of work and, and need to find other ways to make a living. The fact that 97 Point eighty five percent of the writers who participate in the Writers Guild, uh, they authorize the strike. Uh, that tells you just how bonded and committed they are to seeing this through. So you you absolutely are correct. Um, many of them are already trying to find other um, revenue streams um, because they do not want to cross the line. Yeah. Let's talk about this. So uh, the writers I talked to, and I, I will admit it, it was hard to find writers necessarily here. They don't have to be here to write. Uh, the writers I spoke with and interviewed were in Los Angeles or in California. But what they do impacts Georgia so that people understand we may not see picket lines necessarily here. Right. But what you will see, that is correct. But what you will see is all of a sudden um, this influx of what we used to call reruns <laughs> on nightly shows. And uh, you'll you'll notice that uh, the little uh, graphic in the side of the corner that says previously recorded um, because there's no new content going to come out. Uh, and you're right. While many of the writers are in L.A., Georgia has started to see its fair share of writers and writers' rooms, and, and not to mention the many companies that have decided just recently to create writers' rooms here in Georgia. Uh, for our film office, I can tell you that is one of the number one um, requests 
Um, where are the writers' rooms? Where are the writers' rooms? So you had a number of organizations looking to create that this year alone. And so even that, uh, those projects are now on hold. Okay. King, I want to bring you into this conversation as a documentarian a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about what the strike is about? We heard, we heard a couple of the writers, but uh, talk about what this all means for them. Uh, for the writers, they really want to have a new system of like flexibility. And really for the writers, the one thing they're really looking at that I don't think is going to work is they're really looking for a change in having mandatory uh, staffing. And so for a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows, um, as Shani was mentioning, they're mostly based in L.A. They're not necessarily here in Atlanta. We do need to build more of that. But for a lot of writers, they just want to guarantee work requirements of being here. But unfortunately, this is not the 1980s. We're in the 2020s now. And shows that last for, you know, six, seven months where you do 40 or 50 episodes just doesn't exist anymore. But I do think they have a lot of leverage in the other things that they're asking for, which is a, a cutback in the, the holding period. So a lot of times when you're a writer, you sign to an agency or you sign to a production company, and then they keep you either on a show or within the company for let's say one, two, three years. And oftentimes that can kind of hurt your ability to make more money by writing on other things. So I do think they're going to have some things that are going to change just their flexibility and what they can write for, how many shows that they can write. But I do think in just terms of having staffing minimums or addressing AI, which is in many ways a nothing burger, um, they're going to have some challenges on that. But I do think for a place like Atlanta, this is showing one of the limitations we have. While we're a growing film community, we don't necessarily still have the infrastructure of writers and talent based here. And I really hope in the future that changes because yeah. I do think we have a lot to offer. I, I just want to talk briefly about that nothing burger that uh, I ate, the AI that you mentioned uh, a little bit, you know, because the, the, the writers I talked to did mention it. One, and, and both of them actually mentioned using it to a, a certain degree, like a little bit of it, but re recognizing that in the end, you really do need a person when it comes to actually writing to, for people to understand what, uh, what you're trying to say. Right. And I think it's important. I do think there's a legitimate danger in, in assuming that AI will just be passive in a lot of things, especially when it comes to jobs and job creation. But I do think when we talk about a lot of the creativity in media, we live in an IP-driven age. So we're not necessarily looking for new ideas. What we're looking for is more packageable, like current ideas. And I do think for a lot of writers, I think AI is just being like being afraid of the internet. It's going to be something we're going to interface with often, but it's not necessarily going to be the thing that really determines whether or not you get signed to Disney or you get signed to Sony. Yeah. Margaret, I know that uh, we, you know, this is not just an Atlanta issue. Georgia uh, statewide is part of this film and TV industry. So what can you tell yeah. us about that part of the, the world? Yeah, Savannah, um, Savannah prides itself on, on Chatham County as a whole because, of course, um, Tybee Island is, a, is also a, a big um, staging ground for, for um, TV shows and, and movies. But Savannah itself stands in for um, a lot of different uh, metropolitan areas and a lot of different parts of the world when it comes to, um, to downtown historic um, scenes. So, so yeah, we have a, we have a lot of, of small businesses here who are, um, I think, the below-the-line um, companies um, that that are providing costumes, extras, uh, landscaping, uh, carpentry, all of the things that that make a film set a film set, um, our um, beloved institution here in Savannah, the Savannah College of Art and Design, is creating a in a new um, whole sound stage and sound um, area that their students and also professionals would would be able to use from for post production work. So the 
The building blocks of keeping a thriving industry going are definitely here in Savannah. And I think people are, are rightly worried about, um, about a downturn in any part of the state's economy. This one is no exception. Um, it's unclear to me what role our local politicians or state politicians can have when it comes to making sure that um, equity uh, you know, trickles down throughout the industry or that this strike doesn't uh, prolong because small businesses will definitely start hurting, and that's not good for uh, the Republicans or the Democrats in the state of Georgia. Yeah, Shania, she mentioned that this the uh, the below the line, and, and you have too. You know, I I think one of the interesting things for for me was uh, being at a soundstage down and the Trillith and seeing the lumber company being built next door because of the lumber needed to build a soundstage, which you know made me think about that kind of thing. Did this these the people who may be just providing fabric for costumes, all of that. All of these people who will um, who have depended so much on this industry that Georgia has really strived to grow in this state. Absolutely. And as Margaret mentioned, uh, Georgia politicians have been tremendously um, supportive of this industry and have found many ways in which to support it. Um, but when you have small businesses who finally decided that this is the industry that they too would like to be a part of because they saw uh, the, the large support coming from the state and they've poured everything they have into it. When they hear about this type of strike, uh, they rightly are concerned. Uh, and I'm nervous to say, but I believe it, it might get just a, a little worse before it gets better. Yeah. Tamara, let's talk a little bit about the politics and all of this. We, as as I just mentioned, the state has really, really, really worked hard to grow this industry and with the, the tax credits and all. And so um, nobody's weighing in right now. But, you know, there, there has to be, you know, a little nervousness, I guess, over this. Yeah, you're right, Donna. I mean, the state has spent billions of dollars on tax breaks, tax incentives in order to lure a lot of these productions to Atlanta and Georgia, and they've done a great job at it. I think Georgia's number three after LA and New York in terms of, of film productions. Um, so obviously that's a concern, especially all the money that's been built into talent pipelines, as Margaret mentioned, SCAD and all these schools that have kind of adjusted their curriculums to get folks. At the same time, this comes down to a union dispute and Georgia isn't exactly um, into unions. So it does create some awkward maneuvering for, for lawmakers. And I wonder if we will see them step in if, if this starts getting, if this starts dragging on. Yeah, we've been talking a little bit uh, actually yesterday and and uh, in the past shows about the the fact that um, there the budget there've been concerned there've been concerns that the budget that we've seen the last few years coming out of the pandemic would start to go down the revenue stream that we've we've been lucky to have in Georgia for the last few years we, may disappear and with this um, strike on top of all of this that that um, that doesn't bode well for Georgia if that happens. We may see people at unemployment riot lines, right, Tamar? Yeah, and I mean, there there has been more discussion in the Capitol about looking at some of these tax breaks and deciding, is it really worth the money? And so I don't necessarily think those conversations have advanced too far. I might be mistaken, Shania would know, but um, I wonder if this changes the discussion at all. 
Yeah. And then on top of that, as you mentioned, a lot of these writers are based in LA or kind of more progressive places that maybe our Republican lawmakers in power don't necessarily want to support. So I'll be interesting, interested to see how it develops. Yeah. Shania? I, I think that when you see 4.4 billion uh, in a year, uh, it 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 uh, will keep these lawmakers really still rooting for and supporting this industry. Uh, and I think that, um, to Tamar's point, I think it will be very interesting to see whether or not they weigh in because Georgia has not been at the forefront of the conversation when it comes to labor disputes. Yeah. King, what does this mean for you as a documentarian? Um, it means nothing, honestly, for me. And the reason I say that is because documentaries aren't covered in the DGA, which is the Directors Guild, or the PGA, which is the Producers Union, or the WGA, which is the Writers Union. Um, it's also the reason why there's so many reality shows, because reality shows fall under documentaries because they're a type of documentary. So therefore, they're not covered by union protections. So I do think like we saw in 07 and 08, we may have another push again for more reality, more documentary shows, uh, more game shows. And I think that that's going to be a push right now. In the case of Atlanta, I think we're a little bit insulated in the sense that um, while a lot of productions are still going on in the state, I do think when we start thinking like third quarter, fourth quarter this year, that could be what the slowdown actually happens because there's a lot of contracts already. I know Disney corporate wise is, is considering what they're going to do with their long-term investments on some of their projects and they're pulling back, but that won't necessarily be seen until 2024 and 2025. So if the strike can be over um, sooner than later, I think Georgia moves on fine. Um, I don't think it would be as much damage as LA will have, but I do think it is something we need to consider and also expect more maybe reality shows and documentaries based in Atlanta to come up again soon. Uh, is there enough? Is there enough out there for? Um, will reality shows, Shania, be enough to kind of fill some of these studios and take up some of the space and keep people employed? Well, I think that's to be debated. Yeah. But to King's point, we also have a number of new types of shows that are coming up related to even uh, crime dramas. Uh, which also don't fit in that you know, or, or are also somewhat protected. So uh, this is all going to be a wait and see game. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned the crime dramas, the, the, um, these are, these are true crimes you're talking about. They're, they're not necessarily Correct. something that need needs a, a writer or something on that. They just kind of develop They're they're based on things that have already happened. Correct. And they, they follow that similar documentarian type style. Uh, and so uh, I think that Georgia has become very popular even uh, in that genre. So I, I think that we'll be safe related to those types of programs. Margaret, did you want to uh, add something here? Well, I don't know about the rest of um, the panel or the listeners, but I have truly been um, sated with uh, Murdaugh uh, true crime documentaries. So <laughs> if we can... If we can move on from that South Carolina family and create some uh, some new content um, in that space, I I might I might end up watching. <laughs> we may see a lot more Dateline, a lot of stuff that on uh, Court TV, a lot of the true crime stuff. And sadly, there's a there's a lot out there to talk about in all of this. Uh, Shania, the, the um, I appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, give give me an idea of, again of how how big your office is. Give us an idea. Well, our office is um, the biggest in terms of film office in the state. Okay. Uh, and the Fulton commissioners, finally, uh, they decided that, OK, this film business obviously isn't going anywhere. <laughs> so let's fund you. So 
uh, for the moment, hey, guys, I at least have a job. And so I'm excited about that. Otherwise, I'll be watching the crime dramas with Margaret. (laughs) All right. We're (laughs) glad for that. Thank you so much. That's all the time we have for today's show. So thanks to Tamar and Margaret, King, Shania. I'd like to thank the producers, Natalie Mendenhall and Chase, and the engineers, Victoria and Buddha and... Thanks for tuning into the show. You can find us on gbb.org, wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Political Rewind.